Today in the podcast, we're talking about scaling leadership. If there's one thing that we know about leadership, it's that it's not static. It's a dynamic journey and it evolves with personal growth and business expansion. In today's thought-provoking episode, we're having a conversation with Glenn James and we talk to him about some of the challenges that come with scaling a business and scaling your leadership at the same time. Glenn's story is a testament to the transformative power of self-awareness, strategic thinking, and innovative leadership. From his beginnings as an entrepreneur with a passion for financial empowerment, right through to his study tour at Stanford on strategic leadership, Glenn shares with us how he's continuously evolved his leadership style to meet the growing demands of his thriving business. Do it live! Do it live! I'll write it and we'll do it live! 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, lift off! Glenn James is a former financial advisor with experience helping countless people get on top of their finances. He's also the host of the My Millennial Money podcast. Glenn started My Millennial Money back in 2018 as one podcast, which has expanded and grown into two additional core podcasts, including My Millennial Property, My Millennial Career, and also their own show on Spotify called My Millennial Daily. And since that time, it's become a wonderful community of over 85,000 people connecting with each other to cheer each other on in money, in life, property goals, career advice, and more. Glenn, it's an absolute delight to have you on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Great to chat with you and your listeners. Last time we were catching up, we were racing between a meeting that you were having and you were walking around, hobbling around Melbourne in a moon boot. And I, we did a podcast recording for My Millennial Money and it was a very, very brief uh, interaction, but I really enjoyed it. And so it's good to uh, return the favor and bring you on and talk to some of the people in my audience. Yeah, we'll see if we can get into some trouble, that's for sure. One of the, the three kind of questions, that I call them kind of my fast facts, is where were you born, what was your first job, but then what do you do now? Yeah, I was born on the central coast of New South Wales in Gosford Hospital. My first job, it was three afternoons a week in after school at mum's, a pharmacy that my mum worked at, cleaning the storeroom and, you know, organising the boxes and all that stuff. What am I doing now? I'm running a podcast slash online media business. Curious, curious uh, question about the first job. Was it a paid job or did you get roped into doing all of that? No, no, it was paid. It, at the time it was $4 an hour cash. Wow. So wild, right? Must be very nice. <laughs> yeah. I, if it, it was funny, as like a 13 year old, like I knew it was crap money, but whatever. <laughs> it, was, it was enough, you know, inflation, you know, adjusted. It was probably what I reckon... Equivalent nowadays, if someone paid a junior $15 an hour, it was probably 10 bucks an hour. Right. Maybe. I okay. Look, that's all right. Look, you've come a long way from working at the pharmacy, mate. You are, you're doing some pretty amazing things. People, people who are listening, I, I would suggest that there would be some people, actually probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast, who have in some way bumped into My Millennial Money or My Millennial Career or any of the kind of podcasts that you have that are part of your, your group. But let's kind of, before we get to that, can we kind of maybe just rewind a little bit and fill in a few of the blanks between working in the pharmacy and running a, a group that uh, has all of these incredible podcasts? What are some of the milestones that kind of bridge that gap for people? Yeah. I mean, well, firstly, 
the question first job, did you mean like actual first job as a kid or like when I left school? Cause I probably answered that wrong. I told you, you shouldn't have me. I'm not clever. The reason why I love asking first job is cause I, I often talk to these, these really amazing people. And then when I ask the first job, the first job is always like, I worked at KFC or I worked at Macca's and there's this kind of commonality in, you know, we often look at these people and they're doing these great things. And you're like, oh my gosh, they just must have it all together. And you're like, oh my gosh, they, they, everyone kind of has this, this starting point. And, and it's just curiosity mostly too. Well, it, it's funny because I reckon a lot of the things in my first job, I still do today. And I even talked about it in our career book, that first job. In fact, there's a photo of me at that job as a 13 and a half year old. You know, that storm, it was my storm. It was my domain. I treated it like it was the most important thing ever. And it had to be in order. It had to be clear. It had to be clean. And I really took that ownership of the role regardless if anyone else would see that work. And that's what I try and do today. Everything I do, I try and do it with a standard of excellence. Sometimes, you know, it doesn't always happen. Things can be a bit sloppy. Fast forward, I, I left school early. I did an apprenticeship in telecommunications. School wasn't for me. I look back and probably realize that one, my learning style isn't read this, remember it and regurgitate it. My learning style was draw it on a whiteboard, show me the concepts to probably undiagnosed ADHD, couldn't concentrate, blah, blah, blah. Wasn't allowed to leave school unless I had a trade. Uh, in my family growing up, there was no one that was even in my extended family university qualified. So really our big thing was get a trade. You'll be successful if you have a trade. And yeah, there's a lot of successful trade people out there. So I've got a trade in telecommunications, always loved personal finance, always loved the idea of entrepreneurship, loved the idea of not trading your time for money and you know, always in my mind, wanted to have some type of business. I stopped the apprenticeship. Well, I finished the apprenticeship in the trade. And then I went into financial planning business, worked in one of those businesses while I was studying a diploma of financial planning, because I was always interested in personal finance. Did that for a handful of years. Then once I was a qualified financial advisor, started my own financial advice business on the New South Wales Central Coast. Did that for a bit over 10 years. And then I thought I've had enough. I've achieved all the goals that I need to achieve. Managed to sell that business in 2000 and end of 18, start of 19, I think. Just at the end of that, I started the My Millennial Money podcast because there was no mainstream Aussie podcast about personal finances for Aussies by Aussies. And I saw a gap in the marketplace. When I say a gap in something, my personality is I'll drive a truck through that gap. And that's what I did. And fast forward, we're now full-time doing My Millennial Money. Got a team, I think there's seven of us. We've got a handful of different podcasts, We've got books, and it's really yeah, interesting. So that's kind of the nutshell of, you know, my progression. But there was always this theme of being really self-aware about money, the value of money, the trading time for money, the energy and trade-off. It's like, if you want me to do this job, I'll pay you this. Is it worth my energy? No, it's not. So I was really self-aware and yeah, that kind of was always there. And I've always wanted to do an online business. I've tried a couple of online businesses before the podcast. They suck. I had a money podcast before My Millennial Money. It sucked. I stopped it and then re-pivoted, started again. Because I'm not a podcaster. I run an online business and that's the difference. That's what I love doing, running the business side of what we're doing here. 
Go back to the the thing that piqued your interest in personal finance. Maybe there are people that are out there that are born that way. I can't say I've ever felt like there's been a natural curiosity around personal finance. I know it's important, but it, but did that come from somewhere? Is it something you were born with? Like what piqued your interest in that? Yeah, I don't know. To be honest, I always liked the idea of reading personal finance books as a teenager, like the idea of investing. I remember when I was like 15 or 16, one time my parents on a Saturday dropped me off at a community college for a share investing course. And there's all these like retirees there and just me as a kid. So look, I was, yeah, just interested in it. No other reason or I'm not just sure. Just happened why. to kind of pique your interest. Yeah. And, I mean, it, the, you, you've got a couple of books and we'll talk about those a bit later, later on, but a progression, obviously this thing is built, this amazing community of people. Like I, I jumped into your Facebook group for my millennial money and there's a really highly engaged community with people that are engaging with the work that you're doing. You've grown the business to bring on team and you've got multiple podcasts now that are running. Did you set yourself a goal to achieve that? Or is this something that is built on and built on? And then now you're looking at it and going, oh, I didn't actually see that this was what it was going to be. Yeah. To be honest, I, I'm not really a planner, quote unquote. I vibe something out and have this really hardcore gut feeling of, I have to do this. I went to a conference in the US. I think in 2017, while I had the first podcast and the first podcast was called Sort Your Money Out, I landed back in Sydney at the end of 17. I remember it was like the 6am land in Sydney from America. I picked up my phone and I text six people that I knew like want to buy a financial planning business because I was just like so fired up. And then I, in my mind, I'm like, there's no personal finance podcast in Australia that's popular. I'm going to own this island. And that was like, I'm going to do it. So I made the decision to put all my energy into this one thing. And yeah, it was a big risk because I'd, I'd sold my business. I had lots of money, which is cool, but I didn't have any income coming in. So there's a whole discussion there about risk profile, about living off your savings with, you know, on the gut feeling or vibe that I'll be able to monetize it. And yeah, I just went for it. And we had a recent thing in my business where I split the team up and the team is like, well, how's this going to work? And I'm like, I'm really sorry. I don't know, but we're heading in this direction. And all I know is this is the direction we're heading. And we just need to keep walking down this path because we are going in this direction. It will become apparent and we will have to build the systems and the processes and the team along the way. So I very much, uh, gut feeling, vibe it out and back myself. Yeah, that's so fascinating to me because I would make a, a very general assumption that based on your interest in personal finance, that you would be a very meticulously planned, analytically driven, uh, numbers focused person that is check checking off goals on your to-do list in order to be able to get there. But to hear you say that actually, for me, it's about a direction and a, and a kind of a progression towards that direction. Does that surprise you to hear that? Oh, uh, yeah, possibly, but I'm not. I mean, I, I don't like, I don't even have any budgets for my business. Like I just vibe it out. And I, I just finished reading the book, No Rules Rules, like by um, the founder of Netflix. I was kind of like some validation and vindication that they really don't have budgets or do projections. They kind of forecast, but I'm real. like, even in my own financial life, I don't, you know, people in the money world and the retire world are like, I've got a fire number or I've got a number I need to target. I'm like, I need to 
I do three things in my financial life, live on less than I earn, be a generous giver and invest the rest. And I figure, okay, well, bush maths, if I'm living on less than I earn, investing the rest, that's better than having money sitting in a bank account, not earning, and it's better than spending it. So I've just made the decision that I will invest as much as possible. And if I have three or four properties, for example, and they're debt free by the time I earn age 60, well, there's four sets of rent that will cover my expenses. That's kind of like just the bush math vibe that I go towards because I'm not heaps detaily person because financial advice. Yeah. It's funny. People think you must be really analytical. Like, well, no, I'm not an actuary. I'm not an economist. I was a financial advisor, which is more than not a project manager. Client comes in, they've got a series of goals and we work backwards to project manage that. The fact that, okay, it's more tax efficient to do this and the legislation says do that. And we use these structure. That's kind of hygiene that you need to know, but more than not a financial advisor is a project manager. So I don't know if it's answering your question, but I'm a bit of a contrarian with how I operate. But I will say like the success of My Millennial Money, you know, Simo Interactive last year, we were the 34th fastest growing startup in Australia uh, as per the Australian Financial Review. But I honestly reckon it was just luck and it was me right place, right time, right thing and right amount of energy to really push it because I couldn't start what I've got again today. And that basically means to me, we've got a really valuable asset that is there and running and it's not because of how good I am. My team and me, we need to really take care of what we've got in terms of this valuable community. See, one of the things that I, I like about this is that it can hopefully bring some sense of reassurance for people who find themselves in positions of leadership who, I guess, believe that there is a certain criteria or mold that you need to be in order to be able to develop something successful or to lead something quite successfully. In your space, if I was to, from the outside in, make an assumption, I would say, well, given your expertise, you should be this kind of person, which would lead you to lead that kind of business. But you're a very different person than what you would see as a typical mold and yet still achieving the goals that you've set out before you, which I think is, is a hugely encouraging for people, right? Yeah. And I think it's, it all goes back to understanding yourself and understanding your level of risk tolerance or your risk tolerance tolerance in your life. You've talked a little bit about that risk tolerance and I, I've been at a couple of events that you've been at that you actually talk about in, in Sort Your Career Out. Do you want to kind of touch on that a little bit more? Because you touched it a few times. There are people that work nine to five in a government job in an office and that is heaven to them. And I would say, amen, that's awesome. But for me, that sounds like hell. And what that says is that everyone's different. Actually, in the book, Sort Your Career Out, I talk about like the four types of mind, and this is not an episode to plug the book, but whatever. I talk about kind of the four types of mindsets that we might have. And one of them is like an institutional mindset. Where you're at now in your career and life, that you might have no risk tolerance because you spend the last 15 years working in government and you just follow the bouncing ball and it's very safe and secure. So you've never had to use that risk muscle. Or what about your family and generational mindset? For me, my parents or my dad, my grandfather, his grandfather, all self-employed. So I, from a young age, I've seen that self-employed thing. I just think it's knowing yourself and then understanding your level of risk. So there are people that 100% will not be a small business owner. 
100%, there'll be people that do not like roles that are decision-making roles either. So I think what we need to do, like anything, society tells us to focus on our weakness. No, stuff the weakness. Let's double down, triple down, quadruple down on our strength. So once you know who you are and how you operate, I think you've got to play that card. But we live by the sword and we die by the sword. My level of risk-taking, I need to be really careful and temper that and my personality is summed up. If some's good, more must be better, hit me, where that's not the case. You know, you might have two Nurofen for a headache, gets rid of the headache, more Nurofen isn't good. If I took the whole bottle of Nurofen, really bad. So I need to really understand that my personality, it will go there, baby, and I'll take on all this risk, but it, you know, you live by the sword, die by the sword, likewise. Same type of analogy, might be really conservative, got this headache, I need you to take that step, at least have one Nurofen. Tom Rath was a researcher and, and uh, at Gallup, and he's quite no, well known for one of his quotes. She's using a lot of books. It's this idea that you can't be anybody that you want to be, but you can be a whole lot more of who you already are. And uh, I love that you touched on strengths, because I think that is a I mean, big piece of what I truly believe in, is that we have a set of unique talents and strengths that we can contribute and apply that we can double down on. And most people would say, well, just, you know, if you focus on your strengths then ignore your weaknesses and a focus on strengths is not ignoring your weaknesses. It's being aware of your weaknesses and leveraging systems and processes around those so that you can double down on your strengths without getting pulled off and derailing yourself with some of your, your weaknesses. Yeah. I outsource my weaknesses where possible. So if you've ever seen you know, me design something, it's rubbish. So I've got a marketing team. Like I'm not good at scheduling and planning because I just go with it. That's why I've got a production team. I think, yeah, just really understanding who you are and what you're about helps so much. And not, you know, it's funny, like, I don't know if you've ever got a negative feedback about your podcast or, you know, comments online about stuff you've done. One of the fascinating things that you know, cause you can't please everyone. I, I love the D word when I get negative feedback and that disappointed. Oh, Glenn, I'm disappointed you've done that. Or be better. You're disappointed. And I'm like, I'm not perfect, but I know one thing, as long as Glenn James has got the microphone, guess what? I'm sorry. You're getting Glenn James. And I've just resolved that I can't change who I am. Sure. I can be better and do better and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, we are who we are, right? Yeah. And I think one of the things that I, I listening to your story and what kind of really stands out to me is you've had to, at some point, become really self-aware of this is who I am and this is who I'm not. Because if you, if you hadn't, you would have continued to try to be a lesser version of Glenn James by trying to be a typical personal finance or any kind of, um, or any other kind of person really. At what point did you get to that realization? Did you have to have a conscious awareness to go, okay, I've got to double down on who I am. Was it something that you learned over time? What did that look like? I think for me, it was maybe 10 years ago, I did some psychology sessions with a psychologist to really go deep on who I am and how I operate and the reasons why I do things and that was probably, yeah, number one, that's when I really learned who I was because, you know, you do the, um, the strengths finder stuff and all that stuff helps. And I went to a psychologist and his whole thing was profiling 
you know, thinker feelers and doers, and there's blends of that. And the thinkers, they think all day, just nothing will get done, procrastinate, live in their head. The doer, just do, 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 do. I'm just doing, doing, doing. And the feeler, oh, just give me a hug. Tell me it's all going to be okay. All that stuff. So I worked out my personality, you know, myself, I've got, I'm a blend of a thinker doer. So I'll think, 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 do, 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 round and round in circles and go, go, go. And when I get stressed, I go into a mental spiral where I've got a friend of mine. If he gets stressed, he's just like, oh, I just need five beers, like this full on body feel a release where I live in my head. So that really helped knowing that I live in my head. I mean, this isn't really highly practical, but it's just more understanding who I am and how I operate. And then as a commercial sense, uh, when I had my first business, I did everything in the business myself for like the first 18 months, two years. And then I hired someone and it was, you know, that scary thing, like, oh, I've got to pay X amount a week to get help. And I've in a business or commercial sense, I've worked out that, no, you just pay for good people to be good at what they do in the business. And when I started Sort Your Money Out or Simo Interactive, I think my first hire was within the year. And now we're like four years into incorporation or three years, I think four. Yeah, this is our fourth year of incorporation. And I think there's me and seven other people. So really understood that I'm not good at everything. I don't have time to do everything. So I need to outsource uh, my weakness. This whole, I guess, theme that I'm hearing coming through, which is really, really important for, for leaders is to, to lead other people well, you have to know yourself really well. And when you know yourself really well, you know what you're good at, you know what you're not so great at, you know, the kind of leader that you are. And that allows you to either delegate the stuff that is not in your strengths, allows you to lead other people and maybe not frustrate people. Yeah. And probably one of the biggest moments of my professional life was in 2016. I did a, um, a study tour at Stanford. So it was the week at Stanford on site. You slept on site. It was like five days of like study case studies. And it was on strategic leadership. The professors there teaching us were the guys who taught the founders of Google and NVIDIA and like all these household names. That was a big week, a big investment and all that, but it changed my life. And one of the biggest things I learned from that session was you actually can't lead by example because I can't lead my graphic designer team by example, because I'm horrendous at designing. I've got enough, like I can't lead the marketing or the copywriting team by example, because I'm really crap at copywriting. So this whole thing out of Stanford was you've got to lead by design and good leaders create systems and processes for those who they lead to flourish. And that's kind of what I've done in my business. I'm just leading by design. And some people say lead from the middle and all that, but yeah, if Glenn James is leading by example, we're in a lot of trouble. And if Glenn James is your money guru, guru, you're in a lot of trouble as well. I can only, and I've kind of resolved in myself, I want to be a facilitator, like the B2C, you know, podcast facing Glenn James. I'm a facilitator of a conversation. Don't have all the answers. I'll facilitate a conversation in the business side of the fence. I'm Glenn James. I'm the leader of the systems and processes and some people vibe leadership, but I can't lead by example. I think that's really profound, even with people who are listening uh, one of the the programs that I often run is helping leaders get out of that space where they're the know-it-all or the expert for their team to kind of creating a team of people who 
carry the weight of that. And I, I describe it as going from your team's problem solver to creating a team full of problem solvers. And I think when you, as a leader, try to hold the space as being the expert in everything, you A, create dependency from your team to continually come back to you because you're the expert in everything and you can't be. And so what they get is a subpower version of it, but they also don't develop the critical skills that they need to be able to think and solve the problems in the long term. And then what ends up happening is you find leaders and they'll say to me all the time, I feel so exhausted. My team are wearing me down. My team are not carrying the weight. They're not carrying uh, any kind of responsibility. And I'm like, is it any wonder? Because you've become the person or the guru or the expert for your team and you haven't allowed them to create that space. And so uh, I think that it just in itself is, is leading by design, allowing space for systems and policies and practices to help support your team to think critically, as opposed to leading by example, by being the person to try to do everything. Yeah. And I think, you know, the biggest problem in my business, because I'm part of the product as well, the biggest problem is that key person risk. And that's why, you know, on a lot of the podcasts, like Shell's involved, John's involved, Emily's involved, Nick's involved, trying to get more of the other show hosts and dev, like, cause it needs to be this team, even of the client or consumer facing hosts, because yeah, at the moment there's such a key person risk on me. Like if I got throat cancer and couldn't talk again, I mean, some of my haters would probably love that, but it's, uh, for the people who enjoy our content, it's going to be a, a rough time if, um, I'm not the product. So that's a unique issue that I've got. And, and it speaks to it, like for the business owners that are listening in your small business, you've got to always be divesting out of the business. So I've made it a real big thing in my business to take money off the table, get it out of the business into other assets. That's a super helpful tip. I mean, even, even for people who are not running their own business, people who are in organizations, I think there is a mentality and I've certainly held it and carried it at, at times in leadership that you are indispensable. And it's this idea that like, Hey, you're sorry, you're not replaceable and that you are the person that if you were to leave, the whole thing would come crumbling down. And there's probably elements of that that has some truth in there. But if if you want to set your team up for success, then you have to eliminate some of that key person risk and get some of those things out of your head into the minds of other people on your team so that they can help carry some of the organizational knowledge and that, that um, manage that kind of transfer of knowledge that exists within their team as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting, like, as a, and I'm just thinking, if I'm an employee in a business, you don't want to be the, it's that. You know, that book linchpin by Seth Godin, you want to be the absolute linchpin. So if there's five people that in the team and two people have to be fired and made redundant, you want to make sure that you're not one of those people, but it's that balance of you're not the one who's picking up all the other work and because all your coworkers are lazy and you're doing all that stuff, right? And you know, we did a My Millennial Daily episode the other day with Shell about the non-promotable task. You don't want to be that person in the team where... You're picking up all the slack, but you want to be that one who's a like mission critical to the team. So if there are tough times that you don't get let go. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Really profound. And so let, let's talk about this progression from someone who was starting this thing because you saw an opportunity and you went, I'm going to drive the truck through there. And now all of a sudden you've got seven team, but you're the kind of person that I, I would imagine and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that the person who just says, look, we're kind of going in this direction here. And I'm not the person who's planned and staggered out. I would imagine there's probably some people in your team that are more that we need the critical plan, the next step. 
How do you go managing those tensions between being the big picture visionary and then connecting that to the day-to-day? I believe the answer is with great difficulty. And this is hard, right? Because a lot of, and we actually had a team meeting today and we were talking about stuff. And I, I said like, you know, in the team, I'm like, cause we've, we've just done all these, we did a staff development, team development day. And, uh, we all took a couple of days off to read a book of choice. And then we come back and present our findings to the team. Rach and the team did your book, Let's Talk Culture. And it was cool. I did the book, No Rules Rules uh, by Netflix and, um, uh, Jess Pearson did uh, Gary V 12 and a half or something like that. But it was interesting, those three books, there was this theme from your book to Gary V to the Netflix one about like trust, candor, honesty, all that really good stuff. But all that to say, when I did my presentation, Netflix have this thing, we don't like idiot proof policies because it attracts idiots. So I, pr- I pretty much said like, yeah, and someone at Netflix said, you know, we don't have a clothing policy, but no one's rocked up to work naked. So it's this dance between everyone's a machine that needs to be told exactly what to do versus complete autonomy and flexibility and all that stuff. And in my business, we've got a, uh, a document, which will probably get me canceled one day. It's, it's called a Royal decree and it's basically the rules of the workplace, you know, everything that I have decreed. And a friend of mine said to me the other day, you'll end up in court and they'll be saying like, oh, and the guy had this document called a Royal decree. <laughs> it always seems fun and, and playful yeah, in the until moment it's until you look court. at it through the lens yeah. of <laughs> And if you're a fan of Bill Burr, he's got a great piece on that and I'll send it to you later. But part of the Royal decree says work whenever you want, but if it's a business day, and a nine to five in your time zone, you must be available for meetings. There's another like, so just little things like that. And watching the Netflix thing, I'm like, well, technically, because we're a high performance team, I shouldn't have to tell people to be available for meetings during a workday. So that's just a wild example. And I think what we want to get to is I've got some structure in the team, but we don't want to have a rule creep and we don't want to just have rules and rules and rules. Because if you're a member of my team, you're highly trusted, you're trustworthy and a trustworthy person is worthy of trust. And so it's a balance. And all this to say, my team have learned very hard that Glennie J goes wild and they can't keep up. So what I've had to do is we got actually Shell Johnson from, you know, my millennial career. And I don't know if she's been on your podcast. Yeah. She was on last season. Yeah. We got her in to do this workshop, right? And it really defined our values and we couldn't do the four day work week without doing all that work. Right. And our, I guess, and I'm looking, not looking at you because I've got a monitor either side of my main monitor here and all our team monitors have our, our values and our why. And our why is we exist to be an encouraging, fun and relatable voice that leads our community to make meaningful life changes and unlock their potential. So instead of me seeing a flashy, shiny object and pulling the trigger on and going, yep, we'll do this. I see a flashy object go, that's so cool. Then I line that flashy object idea up with our why statement. Oh, that doesn't fit the why scrap move on. So what we've had to do is number one, every business decision that I make and bring to the team has to line up with our why. A couple of years ago, I did this thing. Great example of doing everything wrong and wrecking everything. I wanted to do my millennial coffee. 
So we've got our own branded coffee beans. My friends, Glee Coffee, they've got their own roaster and they'll go into like white label bags and all that. So I pulled the trigger on it. I'm like, yeah, we're doing this. Did a whole day shooting promos and all this stuff at Glee Coffee and, you know, beans and single origin and all that stuff. Turns out um, it didn't sell. No one cared about it. I asked people in the census after it, what type of coffee did you drink? 0.6% said black coffee. So didn't look at the market, didn't research. And it was just a big waste of time. Now we call it like a Glenn's coffee moment in my business. But before I have another coffee moment, I get that idea. And if it doesn't line up with our why, I don't even bring it to the team. So that's helped me be a better leader. I, I jotted this down as you were just unpacking that there. I wrote down this idea of we make decisions aligned to purpose, not a person or a personality. One of the things that we've been talking about in this conversation is you've got to know yourself well to be able to lead other people well. But once you know yourself well, it's not about then going, great, because I know myself well, we're now going to align my business to who I am and lead by my example. We actually have to lead by design. And that design is creating a reference point for everyone to look at that's not you. And so for you, that's your why, that's your purpose, that's your values. And by holding them up, it allows the business to align around those things as opposed to holding you up and aligning the business around you, which is going to create all kinds of frustrations and tensions and frictions, I'd imagine. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's just good to know you, who you are, but then we have to find who Simo the business is. So Simo the business isn't the business to sell coffee because that doesn't exists to be encouraging fun and a relatable voice that encourages people to be better. It's nice, but that's not what we're about. So what we've really done, and at the end of last year, I, I had a really, you know, strategic look at the business and pretty much anything that wasn't making money, we ditched it. And it's not because it wasn't making money in its own right. It was I didn't want to be putting my energy or the team's energy into a commercial project or thing that wasn't fruitful. Generally speaking, unless we run a charity or giving stuff away for free, like we're not a charity. So none of the things we do, like we do some other little things, but I'm talking in the main, like we, we got rid of our My Millennial Business podcast. We're putting all this effort into it. Wasn't making money, couldn't build the audience, just wasn't our thing. We weren't committed to it. The minute we got rid of that and two other, three other podcasts, Spotify knocked on the door and said, Hey, do you want to do an exclusive podcast? I'm like, Oh wow. We've allowed room. We got rid of the dead weight. I'm not talking about the individual hosts of the shows, but just the concept of it takes Nathan and Rach, our production team, the same amount of energy to edit one show for a podcast that doesn't make any money as it does to probably edit three Spotify podcasts. It's very, very, very profitable. So just, yeah, clearing, resetting. Okay. Is this working in the business? No. Because one thing I hate in business and in life, I don't want to just keep doing things just because we've always done it. We always have to reassess. We always have to ask, what are we doing? We always have to ask, is this in line with my own core personal constitution? Because you might change. We all change. Or is this in line with the team's uh, why? I reckon businesses are a breathing, living organization and businesses move, businesses change, businesses evolve. When I had my financial planning business, we had a billboard on the side of the building that was connected to our building. The owner said, yeah, you can put a, a banner up. Every month I changed the banner. I changed the advertisement because 
a business is a living, moving, alive thing. And it's not about having an advertisement that's the same for 50 years on the side of the wall because people just keep glazing over it. But if it's different all the time, it will, um, it will attract attention. So everything's a moving process. Everything's changing. Everything's always growing. The human body, well, I reckon every seven years, the, your cells are being replaced. Yeah. Yeah. We basically become a new human being in many ways. And one of the things that's, that's helpful for that is that people who are listening who maybe haven't gone back to, maybe someone did like a, an exercise where they did their personal values or they did their team values, their organizational values, and they went, great, we did that. It's a good reminder to go back. And these are not things that you do once. They're evolving with your business. And you I mean, if you think about the things that you value now that maybe 10 years ago, they wouldn't have even registered on you, your values. Uh, but through experience and life lived, they become really important to you. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that um, I'm mindful, we're going to kind of bring this into close a bit. I, I've loved this kind of progression that we've gone um, in this conversation, which was just around taking the time required to get to know yourself really well and not feeling like you need to fit the mold. And that could be relevant to a business owner who feels like I'm in this particular industry, therefore I must be this kind of leader. It could be a person who's in an organization working right now who's looking at their leader saying, well, in order to be successful, I need to be exactly like them. But being, being okay to break the mold and know yourself really well, what you do well, what you don't do well, not carrying all of the key person risk, but making sure that you do what you can to bring up the people around you to help carry the weight and responsibility of that. But then making sure that if you are different to the people around you, and my guess is most people are, be careful that you don't try to lead them according to the way that you are as a leader, but create some kind of alignment through organizational team values, some, um, you know, key aspirations that you're working towards as a team so that there can be that sense of clarity of where you're going uh, in the future. And then the last piece you just touched on then, which is like, know what to, to say yes to and what to say no to. That's according to a really clear set of alignment and purpose. And if you can do that well, I think you're going to set yourself up for success. Is there anything else that comes to mind for you as you're kind of reflecting on this conversation that are really key parts? I think it's the don't assume anything. And, you know, we've recently moved to a four-day work week and we had a facilitator come in and do an experiment. Have you heard of Tim Duggan? I have heard of Tim. Yeah, he's been on this podcast. Oh, perfect. So, so Tim did a three-month experiment with our business as part of his next book around the future of work, right? And at the start of the conversation, I said to Tim, like something along the line of, look, to be honest, it might just be easier to just keep it eight to five or whatever that is, nine to five. You know, I don't want to rock the boat too much. I don't want to be taking people away from their own time or I don't know, like I'll, I'll say what he said and he, oh no, I said, oh, I, I wouldn't want a, a culture where people are working at 10 PM at night. Like, I just don't want that culture. And he said, well, the thing is, Glenn, what if someone in your team values that more? Because, you know, from the 3 PM till 6 PM, picking up kids, feeding them that family prime time, it's really valuable for them to be able to have that. And they would find value working a little bit later after all that's done. So it was just like, oh yeah, you're right. Like I only know what I know. I, I, I can't think for everyone else. So it was that, yeah, don't assume because we, what do they say? Like we experience the world, how we see it or something like that. Like it blows my mind. Someone would want to be a plumber, but there's plenty of plumbers out there. I, yeah, we're all wired differently. 
And so, I mean, one of the things that I'm really kind of taking away from this conversation is to, to take the time to get to know myself better so that I can be a better leader to the people around me. And when I do that, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective on this, I, I get the sense my, my curiosity would lead me to believe that if I can be me better and I can build team around me that can be themselves better, aligned to a common purpose, then the consequence of that would be that we attract the kind of people that we need to attract. And you said it before, like we don't create idiot-proof policies because we don't want to attract idiots. But if you try to be somebody that you're not, then you're probably going to attract people that you don't want. And you have this incredible community that you've gathered. Do you see as a byproduct of all this stuff that we've been talking about? Yeah, I think like attracts like. And anyone that comes to our live events, I get to chat with, we've got an awesome listenership and a lot of people that come to our live events, I would have at my house just to have dinner because everyone's chill. I wanted to do a live event here at my house, but my team uh, said probably not a good idea having a heap of strangers at your house, which I would You did have me at your house That's at your true. last live event. That's true. So to, and I, I can vouch for that is something that you would do if you could. Yeah. And you didn't get COVID and I was positive at the time, <laughs> which I didn't know till the next morning. But, um, okay. Okay. Thank look, you. Thank you for clarifying that. Like attracts like. So a lot of my listeners vibe with who I am. Now, a lot of our listeners aren't the type of people that want me to prepare a written podcast, considered reading it. Like I am fast and I'm loose and I type of guy that would laugh at a funeral. You know what I mean? Like. So that type of personality and within our team, sure. I mean, teams are made up of different people. We're not all the same, but I think it's just important with the team side of things that they buy in and respect the culture and the values. We've just hired three team members. And one of the biggest things, like, I don't care how good you are at editing a podcast. I really don't. But if, if you align with our values, awesome. If you don't, don't care because this is so, so important. In fact, the whole culture thing with Netflix, I'm going to read it, Netflix, I'm just Googling this on the fly. Their whole thing on like their website, they basically say, we believe a company's actual values are shown by who they hire, who they reward, or who they let go. For me as a business owner, if I've got some talented jerk that does like, and I don't fire that jerk, well, that's saying that we approve of that behavior as part of our culture. No, it's, it's, it's awesome. That's the, what I often describe as the aspirational versus averages in terms of culture. I say culture is averages, not aspirations. The culture is the sum average of the way people are in your business now, not who you aspire to be. However, culture can be aspirational. And when you keep people who lower the average, whatever that is your culture, then that will be your culture. And if you choose not to let them go, regardless of how much you aspire to create a culture, you will always default and kind of come down to the level of your averages. And Netflix have, have really kind of um, nailed that a lot in terms of their culture. Yeah, like I was uh, visiting a business the other day in the States. Uh, I know a heap of people up there and I was visiting, they let me kind of work from their, um, their open area in the business. And I made the comment that it's a really bad culture. Really bad because as an example, I got there one day and there was a, a cake from like a Monday morning cake, had the cake, right? And I got there in the afternoon and it was still around with plates and cups everywhere. Next day, got in, 
cake still out. Next day, cake still out. It was this culture of it's not my job. It's someone else. And that's like, I often think like they talk about the, I watch a lot of crappy shoot 'em up cop shows and I'm watching Blue Bloods on uh, Paramount and they talk about like this broken window policing policy. And the premise is if you don't prosecute or rather not prosecute, if you don't repair small broken windows, it will cascade to like, all right, this street here, there's broken windows. Oh, no one cares. And something else slips in a bit of graffiti. And then it's this slippery slope. So in a team culture, I looked into this business and saw that, wow, there's this culture that it's no one's job in the team to pack up the cake. And that's just the iceberg. So wild, right? It's a cracked window. I, I love that example. Because again, I remember I'll, I'll kind of finish up on these. I've got one last question for you and maybe you can think about it while I share this. The, and the question is like, if you had a soapbox to stand on for 60 seconds to talk to business owners and leaders right now, what's the thing that you would get a little bit preachy about that's most important for them? But the, the cracked window, there's an example. We went out to a winery, winery recently and the car park was full, but then there was this kind of open paddock next to it. And it was kind of like no parking. It definitely wasn't the thing that they had as an overflow car park. And we were driving around for ages trying to get a park. And then I watched somebody go up on the curb and drive out and just park in this paddock. And we went, you know what? We can't park. Let's just go park beside them. So we start park next to them. And then someone else parked next to us. And we were in the winery for about an hour and a half. We came out and everyone had neatly lined themselves and created this additional car park. But everyone was waiting to try and get a park. They just needed someone who did that. And so it works in a really positive way that you can start a movement. It works in a really negative way that if you don't address those little things, then they can become a very slippery slope. Um, but hey, here's 60 seconds. Get on your soapbox. Talk to people. What, what do they need to know from this conversation today? Okay. As a business owner, you need to, particularly small business owners, any of the day-on-day -day admin tasks that you are doing, you need to outsource that. If you're doing the books yourself, you've got to outsource that, get a bookkeeper, pay a bookkeeper. You've got to free up your time because you are the most valuable sales tool person in your business. You've got to free up time. You cannot be doing admin if you're a business owner. And then secondly, as a business owner, I don't care how good you are if you're an electrician. And I'll give you an example. I had an electrician come and look at one of my properties the other day, fix a, a light switch and redo it, came in didn't clean up black marks from his fingers all around the light switch, white wall. I'm like, I don't care how good you are as an electrician, your client engagement, your customer engagement is rubbish, like clean up. So you will win and lose in business on client engagement. doesn't matter how good you are at your craft, your trade, your thing. If the client or customer experience sucks, you suck. I freaking love it. I love it. Nice way to wrap up the conversation. Glennie J, you've got a couple of books out. One's called Sort uh, Your Money Out and Get Invested. And the latest one, which you wrote with Shell, uh, which is awesome, um, which is Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money. Shell is, has been on the podcast before. I've been on My Millennial Career with her. We've had such great conversations and you two are a, a, a dynamic duo in terms of those books. But uh, we'll put all the details about how people can get hold of your books. Um, we'll put the links to the episodes. Um, obviously, there's a whole bunch of My Millennial shows, career, money, also My Millennial Daily, which you can check out on Spotify, which is fantastic as well. Um, how else can people connect with you? Uh, don't. Don't connect. 
you can send me a link to my LinkedIn and Instagram inbox. It's uh, sorry. I just don't connect with me. I don't care about you. No jokes. <laughs> we'll put some details out. Jokes. Um, in, whatever. Connect with us. We love you. If you, if you're a listener of mine, shut up, get back to work. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> Thanks, Glenn. I appreciate it. See you, mate. Bye. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.